This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Right, good evening everyone. Uh, a warm welcome. I hope you are warm. Warmer in here than you are outside. Um, we are here to mark the launch of a new book by Anna Killick, which we'll be talking about tonight, Politicians and Experts. Uh, it's on sale. It will continue to be on sale. You are not to leave the building without having purchased a copy. Uh, I've done my, my main job for the evening. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Gavin Kelly. I'm the chair of the Resolution Foundation. And importantly for tonight, I am also a board member of Political Quarterly. Um, we're delighted to be co-hosting this event with our friends at PQ, who do a fine job. And indeed, Anna is a part of the PQ team as well. Um, now, my experience of writing books is that one of the big worry, in fact, the big worry when you embark on writing a book, which is always a bit of a traumatic thing, is the fear that what feels like a good idea when you start writing will not be such a great idea uh, or will have been left behind by the passage of time by the time that the book actually appears to the world. And um, for my money, a book coming out at the end of 2022. Uh, with new insights and new things to say on the relationship between politicians on the one hand and economic experts on the other is uh, timely. And uh, so, Anna, if nothing else, you have passed the, the key test for all authors of having um, a shelf life, uh, which I think is, uh, which is important. Um, now, I don't really need to tell a Resolution Foundation audience that um, this is a key topic and has been for some years in British politics. If we go back to 2016, we will all, I think, remember Michael Gove telling us that, I've got what the words, I've got them written somewhere, Britain had had enough of experts. And then, it, not so much economic experts, but of course, during the COVID experience, scientific experts were absolutely front and centre of the kind of national response, which triggered a wider debate about the role of experts and expert groups in policy formulation and what the boundaries are with democratically elected politicians. And then, of course, more recently, we've had the Truss experiment, part of which, and we'll probably come on to this, but part of which was, I think, I think we can fairly say, was a kind of questioning of uh, the established economic institutions of the country um, uh, and taking a sort of a different view to them and, and their role vis-a-vis -vis, uh, politicians in some way. So this is timely. Uh, and it's a good conversation to, to be having now. It's also nice to be having this event because it's a bit different to normal. Um, usually for a Resolution Foundation event, we would have someone with too many charts based on lots of quantitative data from lots of established data sets. And you're not gonna get any of that. If that's what you're here for, you're in the wrong, you've come to the wrong event. Um, no charts, we, uh, but we are gonna get, it's basically, we've got proper research in this book, which I should be waving around, this fine looking book. Uh, because as Anna will tell us, she's interviewed a lot of politicians. Um, so it's in-depth, qualitative research uh, rather than the usual boring old Resolution Foundation quant stuff. Uh, so it's a nice kind of fresh end to the year for us. Um, to take us through it, so we're going to hear from Anna first. And I should say that Anna is a research fellow at UCL, the Department of Political Science. Uh, then we, uh, the other two don't need any introduction whatsoever to any of you, I don't think, but you're going to hear, I think, next from David Gork, uh, who is most famous for being a flourishing young columnist at the New Statesman, but I believe also did some time as Secretary of State at DWP and was Chief Secretary and Justice Secretary. And you all know Eva Cooper, uh, who was once a young economic scribbler we were just talking about at The Independent um, a long time ago. Uh, but Eva, Shadow Home Secretary, also former DWP and Chief Sec. That's right, I'm right. That's yeah. Uh, so, uh, similar track in some ways. Um, uh, so, you're going to hear from both of them after you've heard from Anna, and then we'll kick it about. We'll have a discussion on the panel, and there'll be space for you to ask questions. If you are, I should, warm welcome if you're watching at home, obviously. Uh, uh, and you can all ask questions online on slido.com as per normal and we'll have a mic in the room. So that's the lineup and we're going to try and be done by seven because people have evenings to attend to. Uh, so that's the lineup. Anna, over to you. Tell us about your book. Thank you and thanks everyone for coming and particularly when it's just so cold out there. Um, so 
This book uh, is called Politicians and Economic Experts, and they're really the only experts we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, but the question for the event is, will the experts, the economic experts, strike back, or should they strike back? And um, what I'm going to do is give a kind of overview, because I think that that is a very important question at the moment. Um, probably just as more people may be on the left and in progressive circles and environmental circles are becoming keener than ever before on economic experts coming back in. I think, you know, in the past, a lot of people on the left have been distrustful of economists for being too free market. Whereas what we may have now is a sense that particularly the economics of climate change is so complicated on top of all the other economic crises um, that we're in, that politicians can't be trusted to make those kinds of decisions on economic policy. And so I think that we may find a growing appetite on the left for economic experts coming back in. Um, either that we might have more kind of independent panels of economic experts, or perhaps that we might expect politicians to be more visibly um, consulting them. So I think it's a really important question. But actually, um, I'm, I'm, I'm in a way going to say that I think we should be cautious about that for reasons to do with democracy, that I really got insights from these politicians about. So I'll just um, first of all talk about what the politicians say about economists um, and then about what they say about talking to voters. Um, and um, the, the, the research that I'm going to be um, reporting on is, as Gavin said, of a lot of politicians, we got to 99 politicians and we were supposed to get to 100. It's really frustrating that we ran out of time. Um, and we tried so hard with some of the far right populist parties. Um, but they were the ones who were a bit shy about coming forward. Uh, but we interviewed um, these 99 politicians and some of their closest economic advisors in five countries, UK, USA, France, Germany and Denmark, um, pretty well during the lockdown period. We didn't plan it that way, but that's the way it turned out. And um, across the political spectrum, and we we kept it confidential. We really wanted them there to be quite lengthy interviews, about an hour long, about their economic ideas and about what they thought about politician, uh, economists. Sorry. And um, this first finding that I would say is that uh, in 2020 and 2021, at any rate, these politicians don't have a high opinion of economists. Um, First of all, they often say economists are not scientists. Economists are not like epidemiologists or climatologists. Um, and then they often go on to talk about how divided they think economists are. Um, and there's very few politicians who, when you say the word economist, will think of this kind of economic discipline that is, um, you know, a, a group of people who believe in the same underlying principles and laws. Um, instead, what they'll tend to do is say, well, I have been influenced by Economist X, and then they'll name somebody. Um, and just to give you an idea of the kinds of economists they said had influenced them, does anyone in the audience want to guess which economist was most often mentioned by these um, politicians across five countries? Uh, somebody say Marx. Marx was number three. <laughs> so Keynes was absolutely number one. So Keynes was number one, but then liberal economics or liberal economists were number two. Then it was Marx, then it was Hayek, and then it was, um, this is all them self-describing market, um, free market economics. So 
What they would say is, I go to, if they're on the centre left, they say, I go to Keynes because he gives me permission to intervene and he has shaped my ideas. Um, if they were environmentalists, they would often be very specific that they would only look at people like Kate Rayworth who see the you know, planet in uh, environmentalist terms. And probably the most transactional um, politicians that we talked to were Americans. Um, and Democrat interviewees, for example, when asked, you know, do you seek out economists would say, I only seek out progressive economists. And sometimes they'd even use the word Democrat economists. And then I get them to support my talking points and the same on the Republican side. Um, so a real sense that um, economists are divided. And then when we probed a bit, uh, Further, they would also say that they do still tend to find that a lot of economists are too abstract and that they're not working on applied enough projects of the kind that the politician really needs answers to, you know, on detailed policy. So what that kind of tends to mean is that they describe, even in the middle of crises like 2008, um, they describe well, we got the economists into the room, we talked to them, but then they were divided and they left and we felt we had to make the decision. And they felt that they were the ones who shouldered responsibility and who also were often more in touch with fast-changing fast situations and the kinds of things that their constituents were feeling on the ground. And so, you know, the general message here, and remember these are confidential interviews, was really virtually no politicians were saying, I feel out of my depth, I feel economic crises are now so great that I think that we should cede more control to economists. Um, and so that leads us to the question of, well, if they are thinking that they can still cope with it all, um, then what can we, as outsiders, as voters, as commentators, ask them to do to actually improve the quality of economic decision-making? Because I think most of us would agree that um, it does need to be improved. And this leads me to really my final kind of big point, which is, I think, a hopeful one, that the politicians in this book did either implicitly or explicitly recognise that they had been poor economic communicators up until now. That in some ways they hid behind that whole trend in the 1980s and 1990s to kind of give up some economic control to central banks and arm's length agencies and so on. That also there was a bit of a temptation to hide behind the moral and the cultural and the social stuff. And it's really interesting that I think there are two particular barriers that politicians face when it comes to talking to voters about economic things that they don't face with the moral and the social and political. So that the first problem for politicians is that voters, and we know this from surveys and voters themselves say it, um, feel that the economic stuff is harder to understand. But the second thing is that I think there's a real gulf um, that I wasn't really as aware of before I did this research, between the morality of politicians' economic visions, whether they're from left or right. You know, in private, they talk really passionately either about free markets and, and how that drove them into politics if they're on the right or about the need to redistribute if they're on the left. But when you ask them, how do you think voters see the economy, literally almost every single one of these politicians answered in the same way, whatever their nationality or political party. And that was to say, voters see the economy in a completely self-interested way. They see it through the prism of their own well-being. And therefore, while I can imagine if you were a sort of conservative politician who felt very passionate about something like law and order, you, you could be openly passionate with voters about the need for law and order. It's almost as if there's this kind of mismatch when it comes to talking about the economy. Um, so my kind of final um, 
uh, kind of urging of politicians, and it'd be really interesting to see what David and Yvette think about this, is to ask politicians whether they could try to educate voters about the economy, where educating, we're keeping it as a lower bar as possible by saying, be more open and be more in-depth, you know, not do the hiding behind culture or um, not tackling the difficult stuff that needs to be tackled. And I think there were some politicians in this um, book, including, for example, Republicans in America, who, or Dilinka politicians, the German left who run summer schools, who make a lot of effort to go and talk and have question and answer sessions with voters and workers on their lunch breaks and so on, or use chocolate bars to illustrate what the problems are with protectionism because they've got aluminium wrappers which, which are going up in price. A huge variety of methods from some of the politicians in this book. But I think that the crisis we're in, multiple crises we're in, means that we're gonna to have to have many more of the politicians, not so much perhaps bringing the economic experts in or handing it over to them, but channeling economic expertise to the voters. That's a, a, a striking note on which to finish. Um, thank you, Anna. Uh, I should say, let me just also add, before I hand over, there's a lot in this book, and Anna's had not had the time to run it through. And actually, one of the things, and maybe we'll try and make time for this, that I think is most, I found most informative is actually the kind of, it goes through five countries, and obviously you can go through each of them, but the differences and some similarities between, I think it's, it's UK, America, Denmark, Germany, Germany and France, France yeah. um, are, are fascinating. Um, so, plugging the book again, but it is worth, you know, for both of seeing how the UK looks quite different to some places, but not, not entirely different. So hopefully we'll come, we'll get a chance to hear a bit of that, because it's always good to, look at ourselves compared to others. But um, David, over to you for your thoughts. No, uh, thank you very much um, for that. And Anna, thank you for that um, introduction to the, to the book. Uh, and I suppose just sort of stepping back for a moment, connected with this question of how do politicians uh, communicate about economics and, and what's their sort of uh, economic position. There is, there is also connected to that a uh, fundamental question as to what extent is economics at the heart of what politicians are trying to achieve. And particularly if I look at my, um, my old political party, the Conservative Party, um, I think it really has been you know, very striking how that has changed over the years. So uh, I, as, as you know, almost sort of every other politician is, sort of you know, grew up as a, a sort of you know, child of Thatcher in terms of coming, uh, you know, acquiring a political interest during her period in office, and even those who um, uh, a bit younger, uh, you know, still very much shaped by Margaret Thatcher's uh, government. And, and whether you think the economics were right or wrong, it was undoubtedly an economic project. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the purpose was to transform the British economy uh, after decades of relative decline and, and you know, the crises of the IMF and so on and so on. That was you know, what its purpose was. And she put the, you know, the ministers who were most closely aligned to her, she put them in the treasury, she put them in the trade and industry department, business department, whatever. She, she essentially wanted her people in economic positions. Um, again, you know, moving forward, the, the Cameron Osborne government, of which I was a part as a, as a Treasury Minister, um, again, you know, whether you think the economics were right or wrong, it was essentially an economic uh, message. Uh, it was, um, you know, it, it had a project uh, in terms of deficit reduction that was focused on economics. Uh, and the electoral appeal was essentially about economics as well. You know, that, that was where the issue where we tried to win uh, general elections and you know, not emphatically, but, but you know, we did win um, general elections. Uh, and then something, something happened. So after 2015, and we moved through to the sort of 2016 general election and we can sort of go back and, and Anna picks this point up in the, um, in, in the book, you know, conservatives, actually found it easier 
in the UK, the right, the centre-right found it easier <laughs> in the UK to win the economic arguments, uh, in contrast to some other countries, to mm. Denmark and Germany and, 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 and so on. Um, I don't think that's necessarily to do with always the public agreeing with specific policies, but it, to use the sort of buzzword of the moment, it's about the vibes, it's about that sort of general sense that this is, you know, Conservatives, they're responsible, you can kind of trust them and, and so on. Um, yet if the Conservatives were, are supposed to be the party of you know, sensible economics, what was really striking is in 2016, most Conservative voters voted in the referendum uh, for a position that did not have the support of the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of economists in, in, in the Brexit referendum. Uh, and I think there's a couple of things going on there. One is a sort of... Uh, sort of you know, of the moment, a combination both of some people sort of sticking two fingers up to the establishment, but also looking at a lot of those conservative voters. These were not people who had you know done badly. Um, this, these were people who had done pretty well over uh, many many years. And I think there's an element of, if you like, complacency. Yes, there might be an economic hit, but other things matter more to us, and, and that's why they voted uh, for Brexit. Uh, and then there's also an element in which there is a there has been a long-term realignment of British politics, and not just British politics, but Western politics, uh, whereby um, traditional left voting uh, voters from the working class um, have perhaps felt disillusioned with how they have traditionally voted and have increasingly voted on culture grounds. And they've always been socially conservative. Um, but now, rather than voting on, if you like, economic and social class, they voted on cultural values. And that created an opportunity for centre-right parties. It created opportunity for the Republicans with Donald Trump. It created an opportunity for the Conservative Party that was particularly seized in 2019. And a move in, 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 in that uh, direction going after those voters. Now, those voters were not voting you know, on economics. Um, and it meant that you know, Boris Johnson got a, a whacking great majority, but there wasn't a coherent economic uh, proposal. This wasn't, a, this wasn't an economic project. And I think you can draw a stark contrast to uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher and David Cameron in, in that sense. And I think what we're seeing is that this is sort of playing out in both problems in the economy and problems... Uh, for uh, the Conservative Party because um, the economy is obviously now going through a very, very difficult period. Um, in part, I would argue, because of um, the decisions were made in both in terms of having Brexit and then pursuing a very hard Brexit, uh, that has contributed to uh, the economic problems that we face, add to that international conditions as well and you've got a real economic crisis, and there is no coherent economic response from the Conservative Party because there isn't an, a coherent economic coalition of support within the Conservative Party, and that's immensely sort of difficult. And that, that's why I think you know, my former party faces as, 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 as big a challenge as it does and why Yvette's party uh, may well be in uh, office in a couple of years' time. Um, Two years to go. Two years to go. Yeah, it's a long two years, I suspect, for, for quite a lot of people. But, uh, but, but there we go. Now, I uh, sort of come back to, you know, Anna's talked about, is they going to sort of see, we see a return of, of economics? And at one level, there's a reason to think that we will, because a sort of needs must. You know, clearly the economic performance of the country is not satisfactory, and we're starting to see that debate, you know, bubble up. What should we do about it? How do we respond to it? Uh, there is an opportunity, of course, for Labour to be come across as, as sort of much more the sort of economically credible party after the disastrous experiment uh, with Liz Truss and, and Kwasi Kwarteng. But that also creates you know, some difficulties for Labour because, and, and indeed other, you know, the Conservative Party, because the whole Brexit debate then begins to kick off, and and you know we have got uh, the difficulty that the swing voters in the swing constituencies are not voters who are uh, you know, necessarily voting on <coughs> economics, are not necessarily um, 
uh, you know, let's be honest, economically terribly sophisticated, uh, and they are much more focused on cultural issues, uh, and there's a sort of nervousness uh, about that. But there is that sort of sense that we've kind of got a sort of needs must uh, moment where the UK performance is going to be below those of other European Union countries, for example, other G7 countries. What are we going to do about that? And that would suggest a sort of revival of, of, of economics. But I think you've got those, you've got two problems. One are sort of political geography, where the key voters are. They're still not the economic voters. That may change. You know, maybe a general election down the line, the political geography changes. Maybe if we had a different electoral system, um, different voters would have different uh, influences. Uh, and you, I think there is a specific problem uh, for the Conservative Party in terms of what is its coherent economic position. You know, it, it, it sort of abandoned its traditional sort of cautious approach, pursued Brexit. You then had the sort of Johnson big state version, uh, a frustration of that within the Conservative Party, so rebounding into the sort of Liz Truss, um, you know, fundamentalist um, approach, uh, cut taxes at any cost. You're now returning to a more cautious position, but Rishi Sunak struggling to hold together a coalition um, because, as I say, there just isn't that coherence. Uh, and, and I think, um, much though I'd like to see a more technocratic, frankly, approach to politics uh, and economics and uh, you know, a recognition that we have real economic challenges and that we should act in a way which is economically sensible, um, there are still very strong political barriers to moving to that position. Excellent. Thank you, David. And we should come back, uh, I think, to like the prospects, if you like, the outlook for the Conservative Party and its relationship with economic expertise and economic institutions in the country, given the year that it's had. We should come back to that, mark that. But Eva, uh, over to you for your initial thoughts before we open up. Yeah. Um, so uh, just a few initial thoughts. I mean, I was speak as a... Um, long ago former economist, um, as well as a long time uh, politician, and um, as also somebody who obviously married to someone who's been both an economist and a politician. And if we're thinking about um, how politicians should talk about economics was obviously responsible for the phrase post-neoclassical endogenous growth <laughs> theory. Uh, which I can testify was actually, it was Gordon Brown who wanted that phrase in his speech. It wasn't just Ed's uh, suggestion. Um, and uh, we obviously have in the Labour Party, our shadow chancellor, uh, Rachel Reeves, is someone who is both a politician and an economist. So I wanted to sort of finish on some of the, the points that, um, that David was making about the current state of the economic and political debate. But just to sort of start with um, the points I think that Anna was talking about in the book about the different roles of politicians and um, economists as well. And I think there is, there's an interesting debate about what the different roles should be that as we had in, in 1997, the first in the where first few days of the Labour government, newly elected Labour government, made the Bank of England operationally independent, set the mandate for the Bank of England, but said those decisions about interest rates will be taken by economists, but in the pursuit of a politically set objective and a politically set mandate. Um, and I, there have been people who've argued in different directions through the years, some saying, actually, that's a really bad idea, you should take it all back into politics, others arguing in the other direction that effectively more power and more separate independence should be given <coughs> to the Bank of England and to economists. I think that broad balance is the right one, which says that in the end, it is politics that has to establish the mandate and the purpose, but there are specific decisions where it is actually the most effective way to get price stability to have to meet your inflation objective is to have some of those decisions be taken by in uh, on interest rates be taken by um, economists in that particular way and that's something that um, obviously there was a sort of brief period during the um, the conservatives even more chaotic summer when um, uh, List Trust and others seem to be challenging the independence of the Bank of England and trying to rip up those that framework. Actually, 
Uh, up until then, it was one that had very much had political consensus around. I hope that political consensus has been restored. It's certainly something that Rachel has made very clear her strong support for. But it was also part of, we've obviously had frameworks around fiscal rules as well. And the, uh, the fiscal watchdog, the OBR, set up um, while David was in government as well. And that's, I think, about, again, just recognising different roles. Ultimately, the Chancellor has to make the tax and spending decisions, hugely political decisions, but to have them transparently informed by economists, to have that, that process and the interaction and debate, I think, is a really important one. And in the end, economic policies don't actually ever become sustained if there's not a political consensus around them. So there is now a political consensus around a minimum wage. It is an economic policy, but it needs political consensus to sustain it. Um, I think a policy that both David and I, probably both of us at different times, had to defend in the face of attacks from Treasury economists, which was the pensions um, auto-enrollment and the, mm -hmm. the pensions thing, but that uh, was often under attack. Um, certainly through the, the years um, from economists. But I think, I hope now does have more of a broad political consensus around it as an economic policy. So what you saw, the most sort of chaotic thing that happened then in the mini budget was, of course, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng effectively ripping up all the rules and all the institutions with nothing to put in its place. It wasn't about just changing the objectives. It was actually about saying, do you know what? We don't even care about the facts or the analysis. We don't even care about what the institutions are. And we're just going to shrug our shoulders and do what we want. And I don't think that was about any gap between um, uh, economists and the public. Quite the reverse, because people right across the country and economists alongside each other could all see this was totally bonkers and deeply damaging to have these unfunded huge tax cuts for the richest people of the country in the middle of a cost of living crisis. Everyone could see from the financial markets through to, you know, everybody you were chatting to on the doorstep in the town centre, everybody could see how damaging that this was as an approach. And I think it was also, I would say, a sort of taking to an extreme what we also saw with Boris Johnson, which is, you know, I'm just going to shrug my shoulders about the facts and do whatever I feel like. And uh, just the, the sense really of the, the you could call it uh, carelessness about facts, carelessness about evidence. You could call it... Uh, you could call it an addiction to chaos. You could call it a sort of narcissism. You could call it a whole range of... of of things, I think it was a deeply damaging, selfish approach that Boris Johnson took to the economy. But I think it ended up being taken to extremes. It was that whole mindset became taken to extremes with what Liz Truss did with the um, uh, the budget that has then got long-term consequences that we're paying the price for as well. Just to come back to the, the, the state of politics again in a second, just one more other thought about, again, the roles of different politicians and economists is that my experience, everybody disagrees. So politicians all disagree with each other. Economists all disagree with each other. And when this works, it is part of a proper debate around analysis, around facts, and it is a different way debate. And that uh, economic policy in the UK doesn't work when everybody's at total loggerheads and nobody agrees. But it also doesn't work when everybody is in a sort of bubble of orthodoxy and nobody challenges it. And I would say, I think that that um, approach in terms of the, the sort of orthodoxy did probably take place in the, um, the early, the sort of 2010 to 2015 period. I think that those decisions around um, austerity, the scale of austerity that was pursued in that period, and the lack of any proper growth strategy in that period, I think has been deeply damaging. So it might be an area that David and I disagree with, but I think this has not just been, the situation we're in now has not just been about 12 weeks of economic chaos 
with Liz Truss, it's actually been about 12 years of low growth, lack of a growth strategy, and the scale of austerity in that period, what happened in that 2010 to 2015 period. But there's no doubt about it that there was agreement between Treasury economists and Treasury politicians around that time after 2010 about what the strategy should be. And I think it, it had some very damaging consequences as well. So in other areas where I would think there's been um, disagreements and maybe creative disagreements has been whilst, again, so another example of the, um, the, the sort of orthodoxy, I suppose, would be in the period in the run-up to the global financial crisis when nobody was really predicting what was going to happen. Nobody was anticipating what was going to happen. There was a lot of questioning that should have been happening both in economics and in politics all around the world that wasn't happening. But actually during the global financial crisis, what I saw in the Treasury at that period of time was an incredibly constructive period of continual questioning between economists and politicians and everybody was working at trying to work out what is the best way to respond to banks crashing, the fear that people might end up losing their savings, and how should uh, we respond? And the relationship between um, Gordon Brown, Alistair Darling, and many of the people who were working in the Treasury at that time, I think was a very constructive one, even though people were continually questioning uh, and maybe disagreeing because people were trying to work out what was the right thing to do. Back then to the sort of final, just in terms of where we are now, and the points that David um, was making about um, sort of different, is it about the economy or is it about politics, is it about different kinds of ideas that are dominant. At the moment, to me, it feels like it was that slogan that, um, that I saw in 1992. I worked on the Bill Clinton campaign in uh, Arkansas, in the war room in Arkansas, and they had this big slogan up there which just said, it's the economy, stupid. And actually what they also had in a different colour pen underneath, it said it's the economy stupid in red, and then in blue written underneath was, and don't forget healthcare. <laughs> and actually that kind of encapsulates the <coughs> real deep challenges for the country now. I think it is the economy that is the issue, the cost of living crisis that comes up time and again, um, that people are really stretched, really worried about what is happening and struggling to pay energy bills, worrying about what's gonna happen and also the long-term failure on growth, the long-term failure on productivity that has underpinned that, um, and the consequences of that for our public services, which feel deeply hollowed out, particularly our National Health Service, but other public services, we're seeing it in policing as well, and that interaction between them. I suppose what I would add to that Clinton War Room is climate change and the climate, and that that is, I think, now the big challenge which economists disagree on, in terms of if there's not like there's an economics view and a politics view and there's a gap between them there's actually i think um disagreements across the board about how you solve it and you need that interaction you need that constructive interaction and debate and this is not a debate that takes place separately from the public in which it's about then explaining things quite the reverse actually it is communities across the country that have been driving this debate it's the public debate across the country that i think has very often been ahead of both politics and economics and what one of the things i think that Keir and rachel and ed Miliband have been trying to do is to pull all of those elements together and have both an economic and climate change strategy for the future Thank you, Eva. Lots there, uh, lots there, and lots of ideas bouncing off the book, which is great. Now, <clears throat> what I want to do is just take a few minutes to try and pull a few themes that I found in your book, and then kind of bring those themes into the world of British politics in 20, at the end of 20, this year, where we are today. So one of the themes that really um, spoke to me and it kind of made me think a bit was, and you touched on this in your remarks, Anna, is the kind of mismatch, as you call it, mm. between po politicians' own beliefs about the economy, really kind of what, what brought them into politics in the first place, if you like, was a kind of a moral view of what they thought the good economy should look like. That's kind of what gets them out of bed in the morning. But that isn't what they talk about, is the, is the argument you make. And they feel they have to edit, if you like, 
because their view, and your argument is that this is shared, it's not a left or right thing, it's a kind of shared across the spectrum, is that their view of their voters that they need to speak to is that they have a fairly self-interested view, material view of what, what they want to hear. And that requires in different ways people on the left and right to kind of almost deceive or just to kind of cloak their own beliefs. So that, and, that, and in a way, it's an appeal for a more moral vision, if you like, coming from politicians about the economy they want to see, which is kind of uh, all set out in the book. And what's striking to me reading that in December 2022 is that we've kind of had, in some ways, I mean, say what you like about Liz Truss, yeah. but I mean, she set out, as she saw it, a moral vision for the economy she wanted to see, which is based on, I mean, you know what it was based on, but lower taxes, stay out of the way, equals more, greater freedom and, by the way, higher growth. But it was a pretty, you know, she didn't hold back, right? Uh, so that's what, so I kind of wanted to, what I, so let's start with Anna, I wanted to read the kind of, the chapter you would have written, if you like, if the book had been written today, and, and more just broadly, like, how does the Liz Truss experiment fit with the argument of the book? Because that feels like, for me, the question that was screaming out off the page when I read it. I think... One of her positives was that there did seem to be a bit of honesty there. Um, uh, however, um, okay, so she d does she hit the standard of educating voters um, would, would be the question that I would ask. And I think in a funny kind of way she did because um, voters actually pushed back very heavily against her, less, her, her lesson, um, as um, Yvette was saying. Um, but, you know, I, I did think there was something quite impressive about those debates that she had with Rishi Sunak, just uh, to the extent that they were going into detail about economic policy. And it's partly because the cost of living crisis is something we, that forces politicians really to do that. Uh, but you know, probably they raised the level of awareness of people watching those debates. Um, and it's terrible to say it, but the fallout from it, I mean, do you get any sense that that has also in some ways raised the level of economic awareness and, and the sense among voters they are going to have to engage with some of this technical well, stuff a bit more. Yeah, what do you, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly kind of elevated economic concerns up to, to a peak levels in terms of registering voter interest. But it, I guess it probably also, I, I think you could argue, served as a warning for politicians, if you like, about not nuancing their case by taking account of the views of experts in some ways. I mean, in a way, I mean, David, where, where, where do you come down on this? Dave, where do you think the world of economic experts feels more empowered today than it did, you know, immediately before oh, yes. trust? Yeah, no, absolutely. And there was, yeah, an attempt to essentially say, we don't need the ABR's numbers, um, that, um, you yeah, know, as, as, as Yvette says, there was a sort of point where sort of questions were being asked about the Bank of England's independence. <laughs> Uh, you had Tom Scholar being sacked as permanent secretary uh, on, on Quasi Kwarteng's first day. It was a kind of, hell, we don't need these rules anymore. We're just, you know, it, I mean, it just felt all a bit sort of Lord of the Flies, I think. Um, you know, the, the adults had left and they could kind of do whatever they wanted. Um, and, and the consequences, you know, were so quick and so clear and... You know, so often in, in political and economic debates, you can, you know, there's so much data, there's so much noise that yeah. trying to, trying to effect, find, yeah, yeah, trying to find cause and effect yeah. and, you know, it was a slowdown because of this economic policy or that. It's very obvious what was kind of going on and that sort of sense. So, I, you know, I think one about economic institutions, two, I do think there is a point about fiscal responsibility and that, you know, the argument that, you know, if you've got your own currency, you can borrow as much as you want and, you know, modern monetary theory will sort you out or whatever it might be. That, that is, you know, that's for the birds. You know, there is a sort of point where ultimately you have to maintain market confidence. Now, where, what that is, where the line is drawn, I mean, that was the sort of debate going back to 2010 where there was a genuine and sincere difference between the Conservative government and the Labour opposition as to you know, how much you needed to do to maintain market confidence. But, but you know, 
I think you know, well, I think we we were in agreement that you needed to maintain market confidence, that you couldn't just ignore the markets. And so the combination of markets and institutions, I think, have been strengthened. Let's just, let me just take another bit of your argument, and I'd just like to try and throw this out there. So you, it's kind of sceptical, I think, about the role of what you call economic technocracy. Mm. Sounds a bit like an economic blob, to use mm. the kind of Govian sort of, of like... But when you so one thought I have, that kind of raises two, two thoughts for me. One thought is a technocracy sounds like anonymous and abstract and potentially sort of bad. But when you actually break down what that means, it means I don't know whether it's the OBR or the Low Pay Commission or the Climate Change Committee. And we, I don't, not many people want to get rid of all those things. I don't think so. There's a kind of what 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 do, what is the kind of problem, if you like? What are the institutional problems that? that we're pointing to. But then I kind of tried to, and I thought, well, maybe I'm part of the problem because I kind of, I know these institutions and, you know, I kind of worked in some of them or around places like that. So then I thought, well, actually, maybe there's a kind of a related but different point, which is maybe we've created quite powerful, they don't take decisions, politicians to basically take decisions, but quite powerful institutions which frame debates and get lots of, you know, soak up lots of media time and so on, that kind of acquire their own legitimacy in a way and acquire their own voice. And it makes it easier, question mark, but may, makes it easier for politicians, particularly politicians who don't really know their mind and are lacking some confidence, to hide behind them. Sometimes because they don't really know what to say. Sometimes because politics is hard mm. and it's about trade-offs and you might rather point to the pay review body than actually own an argument about yourself, about pay. Or, but it basically, so is, I guess, trying to kind of connect that thought back to your book, is, is there a risk that... Not because they're, you know, they're big bad institutions with their own hidden agendas or anything, it's just, but they actually require a significance in public debate, which somehow lets po politicians shrink, if you like, the economic debate that they're having, hide behind them, which in some ways is not a good thing for a democracy. You want the politicians to be out there arguing for it. I don't know. I'm trying to. Is, yeah, is that, is that, how does that chime I, with your... I, I think some of them are, to seem to be slightly uneasy about that wave of what academics will call depoliticising the economy and taking economic policy out of the political arena. And, um, you know, I'm really interested what you think of that, Yvette, in the sense that, I mean, do you think that, that, that voters now need to be brought into economic policy making and to feel that they're having some kind of a say in economic policy making to, 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 just to get that kind of engagement and that buy-in to these incredible choices we're going to have to make. So I guess I think it's always been um, a sort of three-way, you know, discussion is, you know, they have the political policy makers, uh, economic analysts or people providing different kinds of analysis because that spectrum can be quite a broad one um, and and the public involved in the debate so I think I probably I don't um, kind of identify with when you talk about education I don't think that's right I think it's about a debate and about sometimes it'll be about persuasion about different ideas but I think, um, you know, for example, there's been a big drop in labour market act act activity at the moment, big increase in inactivity post-COVID that economists would not have predicted and have been actually quite slow to adjust to and saying what's going on in the labour market. Actually, if you talk to people and, you know, you speak to someone who's, you know, in their 50s, they've got a part pension and they've been working from home and now they're looking at going back to a job that, to be honest, they just hate. And why do they want to work full-time in this job? And if their employer's prepared to work, offer them part-time work, you know, they might go back to it, but they're not going to go back full-time. Oh, and actually, because of everything that's happened in COVID, they really don't want their mum to go in a care home. And so, you know, they're going to have to stay home and look after their mum so that she doesn't have to go in a care home because that's been such a bad experience. Or, do you know, childcare costs have shot up through the roof. So, I think that if economists aren't listening to the public and talking to the public and listening about what's happening, then economists are going to get decisions wrong. Mm. And likewise, politicians are in that mix of continually, if they're doing the right job, are continually listening and questioning 
as well as trying to persuade about different kinds of ideas and vision for the future. And I think, really think that is nowhere more so than around climate change economics, because it is complicated as to how do we get to net zero and what are the different mechanisms, and people have got lots of different ideas. But actually, a lot of this debate, I do think, is being just being driven by young people. It's being driven in communities as the sort of moral purpose of it. And then you've got all of these competing ideas. So I guess I don't see it as these sort of three abstract yeah. groups yeah. who, you know, are in some way in standoff or, or need, you know, I actually think there's, a, there's an integrated mix between all of them and you get things right if you've got a constructive, continual tension and questioning of everybody involved and together. That's and very briefly, and then David, and then we're going to bring in some the audience. And that's something that's really striking. If you're not a politician, how much respect politicians have for the sort of everyday experiences of their constituents. But I am, I, I am just going to ask you whether you think it's possible to educate in a way that is not condescending it, it, it is, is two-way because you brought in as many of their experiences as possible but is somehow in depth enough that you you are increasing their level of economic knowledge and understanding so I guess I don't see it as being the gulf in that same way okay I think you know I think people watching the telly in Castleford had the same reaction to me as Liz, to Liz Truss's budget and just thought this is bonkers and I don't think it was about education. I think it's about common sense. And I think I don't see there as being that gulf. I think there's a debate continually. And there's certainly a debate about climate change, because I don't know what the detailed answers are um, on some of the climate change issues. But I, you know, I just think that that, that gap is, is not quite the right way to characterise it. David. I was just going to say, there's sort of tension between independent institutions and democracy. Yeah. Is, that, is that actually very often these independent institutions help democracy because they make it easier to hold politicians to account. So the OBR, for example, I'm not just saying that because Richard's here, but you know, the OBR, the fact that it publishes um, its reports, that it, the fact that it puts out its analysis is kind of really important. And it makes, and, and, and you know, I used to do the, you know, very often the sort of the news night after a budget, uh, and I'd very often go, you know, on after Robert Choate, and 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 the interview that I then received yeah. was much better informed than I was held. Much better. I mean, I'm now starting to question whether it was a good idea or not. But but look, it, it, it you know that that really helps. And the same, I think, with climate change, which is incredibly difficult. The decisions are still made by the government, but the fact that you have got a climate change commission that sort of says these are our recommendations and then the government is held to account. You've still got accountability, but you're actually coming back to this education point. Very often the independent institutions do, do, do help educate yeah. the public as a whole. They help educate politicians as a whole. And that's why it was so dangerous to try and you know, short circuit the system and do a big fiscal okay. event with the, with the OBR. It's and it's, it's very like everyone can have a pop at the OBR for getting you know because their forecasts will always be wrong and everyone can have fun pointing that out. And that's but I mean compared to not having them is yeah. uh, you know it, that's that's the counterfactual. I, I think we should uh, right. We want to come to the audience, so uh, don't be shy, uh, Rob. Do you want to? We've got a gentleman in the middle there. And we'll take a we'll take a few, uh, and you will come to the lady behind the gentleman, and then the gentleman at the front. Uh, qu questions have question marks at the end rather than long speeches, given the time. Sorry to be rude. Uh, Tell us who you are. Of course, um, Andres Karabogatov. I'm a civil servant, not not an economist. However, um, very good question is, we don't expect our politicians to be experts on epidemiology or on climate science, but we do kind of expect a degree of expertise from them on on economics. What sort of advice? should politicians take from experts and how should they seek that advice? Okay, thank you. There's a lady, I think, in the row behind you. Yeah. Hi. Um, Anna, just a question for you is how you would respond to David's remarks about that OBR helps hold people to account with your previous book on how voters themselves maybe don't think that what the OBR is doing is actually the economy as far as it pertains to them. So how do you, how would you react in the context of your previous work to that comment? Right, okay. Uh, and then the gentleman front row. 
William Plexer Smith. Uh, Aaron Davis, in his recent book about the uh, Treasury over the last 40 years, talks a lot about the relationship between politicians and non-independent economists, those working in the civil service. And I wondered whether that was something that the politicians you talked to, Anna, were talking about, or when they were asking, when you were asking about economists, they were talking about people external to government. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. I feel that occurred to me too. Um, so you're not all going to answer all those, I think, but just uh, uh, let's start. So there was an interesting one. It's basically, what sort of advice should politicians be asking for from experts, but particularly economists, and what should they be, because you're basically sort of saying, well, do we expect too much of economists in terms of, sorry, too much of politicians in terms of their knowledge of the economy? I don't know. What do you think, Eva? I guess I think that um, the role of, of politicians and ministers um, is probably to question everybody and to gather as much analysis and as much information and so on as possible, but also to always question. And I think that would go for public health information as much as it would go for economic information and so on. So, you know, yeah, there might be degrees of things where there is more consensus and areas where there's less consensus in terms of the kinds of expert analysis that you get. But sometimes you have to ask even more probing questions when there seems to be a huge consensus, because that can also be where, you know, you get the groupthink that means you all get it wrong. So... Um, I, I suppose my kind of feeling for, for all ministers and all politicians for select committees and so on is that actually part of the job is to always ask for the expert analysis, to get as much expertise as possible, but to always have the confidence to question it and to challenge it, whatever your background, whatever your own experiences or your own knowledge is, because that's how you get to the best decisions. My vignette on that is, so one person I worked for was David Blunkett, who was not an, an economist, I think I'd right, fair to say, but he was brutal interrogating advice, and was uh, compared to other people I worked with who, were, who would have thought of themselves as economists, they kind of they got quite into the geekiness of the numbers, and they kind of like being the economist with the economists, if you like. Whereas David Blunkett would just ask really tough questions about what it would mean for different types of people in different situations, cut through lots of the analysis, and for, and it, and and it was I think in that regard a more demanding and and in some ways successful user of evidence because he wasn't so buried in the numbers, but he kind of had a, his own lens that he applied because he was a confident politician, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, just I mean, in a way, it's a sort of the heart of um, Anna's book is is you know what's the role of the kind of the minister, and sometimes it is to mediate between, yeah. if you like, the technocratic answer and what is politically deliverable, and what you as a minister bring is the is the political knowledge and understanding, and 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 you know this isn't unique to economics. I mean, almost any you know, minister in any role. You know, whatever you're, you know, are you a, you know, are you an expert on running big organisations? Are you an expert in, you know, the prison system? Uh, whatever it might be, you know, you 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 sh you have to have a sort of you know, inquiring mind, intellectual curiosity. Obviously, you know, it helps to have a sort of you know, a reasonable understanding of of economics, but I don't think you need to be, you know, I don't think you need to have, you know, be a doctor, you know, doctorate and, or you know, PhD or anything in that sort to be, you know, to be able to provide that role and add value as a politician. Because, because there's also this point, you know, whatever decisions you have to make, you in the end have to explain it to the public, you have to bring your party with you, you have to bring your, you bring, ultimately bring the country with you. And, and those are the sort of political skills that in the end, only democratically elected politicians can bring. Um, thank you, David. And uh, you got asked a question about a yeah. previous book you wrote, but also a question about basically, did politicians, were they always talking about external economists and did you ask them about how they felt about and used economists within the governmental system? It was quite interesting how they interpreted the word economist. And for example, in Denmark, they would talk about economists as very much working alongside them, possibly because it's a smaller country, possibly because, um, you know, I think that, that, that politicians have, have such a kind of strong model for how they want Denmark to go and, and, and there seems to be a consensus of ideas at both the politician level and the economic level. Whereas um, the British and American politicians would tend to interpret 
the word economist as referring to those kind of outside university-based economists rather than the people that perhaps were the treasury economists or your partisan um, economic advisors. Um, and, that, but, and then I think they would say that the treasury economists were more useful than the university-based ones just because they, they were more hands-on or less abstract. Briefly, on the other one. But on, on, on the other one about voters, I think it's really interesting because there was that um, comment during the Brexit referendum that a member of the audience, when they were talking about GDP, shouted, it's not my GDP. Um, and the whole distrust of official statistics and all the rest of it and seeing things like the OBR uh, all the Bank of England as distant and um, making economic policy that isn't relevant to them, particularly if they're on very low incomes. I think this is where the cost of living may have completely changed things. It, what happened with the economy during the pandemic, people observing the full horror of economic lockdown may also have changed things. Um, but uh, I think we're in new territory about how probably voters feel more connected which is why I think there's a potential for a, a higher level of debate and engagement. Okay, um, Rob, let's just take a few more questions if there are any more in the room. The gentleman in the front here, and they, there's a gentleman over there. Hi, Titus Alexander, Democracy Matters. I was very interested you mentioned the point of education and educating the public and also people's own views. And I wondered whether there's an issue here about political and economic literacy about and deliberation about greater deeper understanding in society and the what's the role of education institutions in that not just pot politicians who in a sense have a partisan position for which to do that education but yeah, yeah okay big question on education and gentlemen there uh, peter carpenter um if you look at the sort of economic consensus under osborne and the current one under Osborne 2.0, uh, the, the actual effect of it is to make the rich richer and the poor poorer. And that's not a good social outcome. So there must be something wrong with the economic analysis which everybody's agreeing with. And before we come back, because we are just about out of time. Okay, uh, Eva, and what do you want to pick up on there? Um, so I think um, we did some quite a bit of stuff back in um, the Labour government about financial education and actually just you know, mm. people's and in schools just about things like opening bank accounts all of those sorts of things about financial literacy um, and so I think and you know all politicians will always talk to you enthusiastically about you know things like citizenship education and, and having more debates around um, um, politics and so on I but I, I suppose I can still go back to this issue that I think it is so important and so immediate for people everywhere that, you know, some of this is also actually about everybody listening to each other um, rather than um, just being about education. And then I suppose this final point, I mean, I think the end, the... For me, politics and economics has always been linked together. It's always been closely linked together. So that kind of, you know, the scale of economic inequality and injustice is is part of my politics, is part of my view of politics. And so um, I, I suppose I w would agree with you. I would think that there, has, there are um, there's all sorts of things wrong with a strategy that ends up with both low growth and the sort of deep injustices, deep economic injustices as well. And the two things I think go hand in hand. Um, and, but that's why I suppose, nice when I said at the beginning that I suppose I speak as a sort of former economist and current politician and talked about the interaction, I, I find it difficult to separate them. So I would talk about economic analysis and, mm. you know, an analysis and facts and research and evidence that I would talk about in economics and in other sectors as well. But I, f I can't separate politics and economics themselves because for me they do go so closely together as part of what your vision is for a better country. David, last thoughts from you, including whether the Conservative Party are going to learn to love economic 
expertise again. I swear, well, first of all, I I, um, I, I don't accept the uh, the distributional analysis of of, of, of of the 2010 2015 period in terms of you know the rich uh, did see quite significant increases in in, in taxes. Um, but Gavin, on your sort of wider question, I think it's. Uh, I, Predicting the future of the um, Conservative Party is pretty perilous, um, yeah, week by week in, in recent months. Uh, but I think, um, yeah, there, I think I'd I, I come back to this point. I think there is a real problem with the um, the inheritance. Uh, the 2019 general election was one. I mean, for a start, it was the worst ever offer made to the British public in terms of economic policy from the two major parties. Um, you know, one was you know, proposing a, 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 a pretty disastrous hard Brexit, the other was proposing pretty disastrous economic policies across the board. Um, and I hope that we are never going to be faced with that again, and by the looks of it, we're not going to be faced with such a desperate prospect at the next general election. But it has meant that the Conservative Party does not cohere around an economic view in the way that it did you know, through you know, the early 2010s and through the 1980s and so on. And that is a big problem for the Conservative Party. And until it gets to the point where there is some kind of economic consensus within uh, the party, and I think we're a long way away from that, um, the Conservative Party is going to have you know, real difficulties. Yeah. And at last word to you, we haven't done justice to all of your book, but we've hopefully given everyone a flavour of it. Last, last thoughts from you. Uh, yeah, and, and it's been a fantastic discussion. Um, I, I still cling to the hope that, that politicians, I think politicians are the best communicators we've got. And I've taught actually in schools citizenship. Um, and, you know, teachers can go at it all they want, but when it comes down to it, it's 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 when people are out in the real world paying their taxes or whatever that that, that they tend to focus, and um, we can hope that the media would do a better job, um, but I think politicians do, on the whole, have a real flair for communication and and economic communication. I'm hoping will be at a higher level, put it like that, in a mutual sense in future. Thank you, Anna. We've certainly had some good communicators up here tonight. Yeah. Um, so uh, thanks to our speakers. Um, thanks to Political Quarterly uh, uh, for uh, hosting this with, with the Resolution Foundation. Thanks to all of you for turning up on a freezing cold night. You all know the stocking filler that you need for the, ex <laughs> the economic expert oh, in your life. Thank you. It will fill that hole in your stocking. Go and buy it. Uh, and thanks. And we've got another event on Monday. On uh, it is on the domestic uh, heating transition, which is the hardest, knottiest issue in net zero. So if you want to hear about how to do that, come here on Monday. Thank you very much. Good night. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.